Hello and welcome to episode 395 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Nathan Fox. With me is Ben Olson. We are the co-founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. You can always be LSAT famous if you want to share news or ask questions via our website, thinkinglsat.com. This show is going to air on Monday, March 27th. Not a lot going on at this point in the cycle. Uh, Next registration deadline to keep your eye on is April 25th, which is the registration deadline for the June 2023 test. You can go to lsat.link forward slash dates if you want to see all those registration deadlines. Our philosophy here is basically don't register for a test unless your practice tests indicate that you're ready to register for the test. We don't want you to just be throwing money at the law school admission council unnecessarily. And that's what happens when you register before you're actually ready for a test. You're going to end up rescheduling. You're going to end up wasting a lot of money or you're going to end up taking a test that you're not actually prepared for which is even worse than just the wasting money. So there's no reason to in the modern era of online uh, LSATs. They never run out of seats. So just wait till the registration deadline and sign up. Again, it's April 25th is the registration deadline for the June 2023 test. All right, we got an email here at the top from Anonymous. Why don't you read it for us? Sure. The subject is, are applicants in their senior year of undergrad at a disadvantage? It seems that law schools are increasingly favoring students who have taken time off, and Harvard even says that they prefer applicants with work experience. Does this mean that students applying to law school in their senior year of undergrad are at a disadvantage, going against what the law school explicitly says they want? Should an applicant take time off after undergrad just for this reason? even if they know that they want to go to law school and are ready with the LSAT? That's two totally (laughs) separate questions. What do you think about the first one? And let's talk about Harvard specifically. What do you think? I, (laughs) I think this is just yet another soft factor, which maybe all things being equal would have some impact on your application, but that's all things being equal. You can't ignore the big numbers, the GPA and the LSAT. I just, I wouldn't spend time thinking about this stuff. I wouldn't spend time thinking about it either, but I think I would probably agree that Harvard, if they say they prefer applicants with work experience, I bet they prefer applicants with work experience. They have, they They, have the ability... (laughs) But all things being equal, right? And I actually, I I agree with the substance of this. If you have two applicants and one's two years older or a year older, they know themselves better. They have work experience. They're probably going to work harder. That means they're more likely to be successful in law school. But again, that comes back to all things being equal. You have a 170 and a 175, and the 175 doesn't have work experience, but higher GPA, it's like, well, you showed yourself in undergrad. I think that stuff is going to matter more in the end. Of course, LSAT and GPA matters more. There's no question. But at Harvard, all students are on the bubble. Like mm-hmm. it, it, you know, they they get so many overqualified applicants. Like they turn down hundreds or thousands of qualified applicants every year. And 
given that is the arena that you're playing in, if you're talking about Harvard, which is, you know, like, okay, it's not currently number one in the U.S. Uh, world News and World Report rankings. It's not even in the top three right now. Um, but it's still Harvard Law School, right? I mean, I think Harvard is the number one choice for many applicants. And they just they get so many competitive applicants that they are going to be looking at people with 175s and 3.9s and comparing them against one another. And when they're comparing them against one another, they say that they're going to prefer applicants with work experience. I believe them that they're going to prefer applicants with work experience. Why wouldn't they? Ben, as you note, maturity matters here a lot, and you can be a pretty accomplished undergraduate student who still really isn't a grown-up yet. And a job has a way of turning people into grown-ups, and I think Harvard knows this. And so, you know, if you can go get a few years of experience under your belt, you know, one year, two years, three years, up to probably 10 years, I think it's still going to always be benefiting you for a school that's as competitive as Harvard. What does this mean for the other schools, though? I mean, this person sounds like they're extrapolating from what Harvard is saying to all these other schools, and maybe with schools that have as competitive applicants, right, and they're comparing a 3.9175 to a 3.9175, they're going to also prefer work experience. I think, I mean, just generally, it's better for the student, right? They're more mature. They're going to be able to study better. But as you drop in the rankings, right, numbers just become even more important versus work experience. Right. When you're talking about a UC Hastings, you know, San Francisco law school, a mediocre 50-something ranked school, they don't have a whole boatload of 175s and 3.9s. You know, they never get those applicants. And so if you apply right out of undergrad with those kinds of numbers, your chances are pretty good at a regional school. Um, well, and those are extreme numbers. But even if you're talking about a 168 versus a 162, you're not going to have as many 168s or right. one, even 166 you know, or whatever number. It might just be two points or a point higher that's going to have a bigger impact than it is when you're applying to Harvard just because yeah. by, by definition, you already have to have those numbers to even be competing at Harvard. Yeah. Should an applicant take time off after undergrad just for this reason, <laughs> even if they know they want to go to law school and are ready with the LSAT? Well, so there's a phrase in here that's holding me up just for this reason. Right. What and if we strike that? Should an applicant take time off after undergrad, even if they know they want to go to law school and are ready with the LSAT? Possibly. I mean, those are two key assumptions, right, that normally we would tell people to take time off for, to get better at the LSAT and to decide if they really want to go to law school. So if we're going to assume those two things, you really know that you want to go to law school, well, that could change after you do a year of work and realize what you're getting into. Um, but if you're it, ready with the LSAT, I don't know. It's going to depend a lot on your life circumstances. I think I would consider those factors more than maybe just this admissions chances thing. And I'm just going to say, why the fuck not? Why not? Like, what's the reason not to do it? 
Yeah, I mean, that's where these other factors come into play, I guess. If you're ready and you have a great LSAT score and you got free offers, I don't have a problem with someone going. I don't I don't necessarily have a problem with someone going, but I feel like undergrads tend to like I think the presumption should actually be in favor of taking time off rather than a presumption of going straight to law school. K to JD. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why not take some time off? Why not be, you know, oh, you're already 100 percent sure. Okay, well, let's see if we can get that up to 110 percent sure. Because young people are frequently sure about things that then two years later are completely not the plan at all. I mean, I changed my plan several times. And many people who go to law school don't end up practicing law. I mean, it's like half the people who go to law school never practice law. So you think you're ready. You think you're sure about this. But that's 21-year-old you and 22 three-year-old you very likely is going to have a different story. And that might be scary to your parents or something, but I think the far scarier thing is you get, you know, two years and a hundred thousand dollars into this endeavor of law school and then realize that it's not what you thought it was going to be. And a year or two working in a law firm You know, it just, it can't hurt you. It can only help you, especially if it gives you any kind of insight at all into whether this is the career that you actually want. You know, is this just a fantasy career that you like think of the concept of being a lawyer? Oh, well, I didn't, you know, I don't like science, so I can't be a doctor. So a lawyer, that's the thing for me. And it's like, you've never once set foot inside of a law firm or a courtroom and you have no idea what you're getting yourself into a couple of years to figure some shit out and just have a little bit more maturity. I, I can think of no credible reason why you wouldn't want to do this. And so I guess I would be just kind of flipping the presumption and why don't we just presume that right out of undergrad is not the best time to go straight to law school. I'm not saying don't move in that direction. I'm not saying don't prepare or think about it or plan or network or whatever. But this idea that like, by default, I'm going straight from undergrad into my JD. And like this idea that you have to make an affirmative decision in order to take time off. I think it should be the other way around that you shouldn't. <laughs> I want people to make an affirmative decision to go to damn law school, which I think, you know, getting off the autopilot, having something else in between school and law school can then maybe give you a little bit of breathing room to, you know, like it just breaks that inertia so that you can make a better reasoned decision to choose law school. Does, am I making sense? Oh, Absolutely. As you were talking, I thought of two things specifically. One is um, a friend's friend of mine's dad, who's an attorney, and I think (laughs) after years and years of practice, still hasn't retired and is still practicing, and I don't think he really loves it. But I think he's working to continue to pay the bills and you know finance his life, and that's a very possible outcome, right? Is that you have people who love it 
you have people who hate it and get out of it, and that was a waste of time and money. But you also have these people who kind of take the middle easy path, which is like, I don't love this, but it's what I got trained in. It's how I make decent money. So I'm just. It's my only way of paying back these loans. Yep. And even if you pay them back, once you're making 200, 250, how do you switch careers without taking that budget cut, right? It's hard. So you just keep following this path. (laughs) To be clear. No, I, I agree with you. I just don't want people to like you blithely say, oh, once you're making 200, 250, <laughs> like, OK, yeah. What percentage of people who actually go to law school make 200 or 250 well, ever? I mean, we can get career? we can get into that discussion. But even for people who kind of take this, you know, they don't they go they start in big law, but then they go off into their own practice and and a lot of people would count that as success, right? They would say, "Hey, look, look, they're making 250." And I agree. <laughs> That's not the best number to throw out there, but even in that situation, you have people who are like they, their life. They've now given their life to this career that they feel ho hum about, but there's no you know, it's the easiest path. So anyways, I was just thinking about him and I was thinking about his lackluster feelings about the law, but also persisting in this path because he doesn't really see, not that he doesn't see any other, but it's just the easiest path, right? Well, the, it's just yeah. default. I it's mean, just like that okay. guy like one, you know, he, yeah. he's, he's a success story because there are so few of them in this game. I mean, yeah. he's, he's one out of God. What, what do you think it is? One out of five who go straight into big law. Probably fewer, right? Fewer, okay. One out of ten that goes straight into big law. And this guy, you know, not only went into big law, but then stayed there long enough to be semi-successful and then transitioned into his own career. This is like one of the poster child for like, okay, here's what it looks like if you win. Yeah. (laughs) And he doesn't even like it. He's only doing it for the money. Well, and there's more I'm not saying here, and that is partly that so much of his life was given to the firm. Yeah. And there's this, I don't know if it's resentment or this just this underlying like, huh? What was that all for? Right? Like, Did he get divorced? Yes. Oh, he did. An alcoholic. (laughs) And became an alcoholic. That was my next question. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, okay. So this is a divorced alcoholic, hopefully recovered gave his life to the firm and now is kind of like trapped in these golden handcuffs. They're not even golden handcuffs. They're like uh, bronze handcuffs. And he's sort of like, well, you know, I make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and I don't really love it, but what, uh, what else am I going to do? I don't have a family anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> like that's not like, that's a scary story for, for me. I don't, I don't think anybody should be looking at that as like, oh, nice. Yeah. That guy, he won. I mean, but that's like the, there are bad, there are just bad outcomes in this game. And I don't want people to like, they, they put the rose colored glasses on, you know, and they just go, it's especially undergrads. Oh no. That's not going to happen to me. I'm going to do it right. 
And I'm going to, you know, yeah. I'm going to somehow not succumb to the pressure to work 80 hour weeks and ignore my family. I mean, you're human. Everyone is. And you just have to be very mindful of the environment you're putting yourself into. The other idea that I had, which is going to sound a little contradictory because that guy just stayed in the same career, but I read the other day, and I don't know if this is true because, of course, what you read in the news is not always true, but I read that the average American changes their career, not their job, their career, seven times throughout <laughs> their life. And I, yeah. I don't know that it's totally crazy because in some ways, you know, I've sort of done that too. It's like I'm going from law school to legal writing consulting to then the LSAT and now this almost feels it's the same kind of career but it's changed I mean online and <laughs> a lot of people change specifically from law to anything else yeah and that's the reason to take time off after undergrad yeah you know if, if I got if I got a dozen anonymous in, in the room you know, what percentage of those people do you think are going to like retire practicing law? Yeah. <laughs> a quarter of them, maybe. Yeah. And that's of people who have the grades and GPA to like credibly. I'm giving anonymous credit for being a good candidate for Harvard. Yeah. But it's still like, yeah, I don't know. You're a good candidate for Harvard Law School. Okay. I give you a 25% chance that you're going to graduate or like that you're going to retire as an attorney. You're just probably not like most people don't. Most people end up doing something else. So yeah. that's the reason to not go straight in K through JD is just like grow up, get some more life experience. You're only going to be a better applicant. If law turns out to be the thing for you, then great. You can go, you know, become Ruth Bader Ginsburg and literally die on the bench. You know, that's that's the home run. That's a fantastic success story. But you can still do that after accumulating a few years in the firm or a, a few years doing anything else before going to law school. There's no reason to go straight if that is going to be the your career path. All the more reason to take some time off before you do it. You know those cars that drive really, really fast and really, really short distances? They have huge back tires. And oh, like uh, like drag racing? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, they start spinning before they take off. Yeah. Right? This is that year, and you can start <laughs> spinning. If you're really destined for this, then you're going to fly out of there, and you're going to fly into law school and kick ass. If it's not, then you're going to get out of that car and go like to some other... You're going to do some other game, right? Perfect. Yeah. Take some take some time off to rev your engines. I don't know. Just <laughs> there's just no need to force yourself straight through. And parents, if you're forcing your kids to go straight from undergrad into JD, as a man with a JD, I think you're making a mistake. I think that you should let them slow down. You should encourage them to slow down and take all the time in the world. They can get on the rat race treadmill what whatever analogy you want to use they can do that later they do not need to do that directly out of undergrad okay uh, here's another one from uh 
Anonymous. It says, scholarship negotiation at a T14. First, huge shout out to the LSAT demon. I was able to increase my score from 152 to 172 in four months, and I couldn't have done it without the demon. I'm grateful to have received full ride offers, uh, full ride offers from Loyola Chicago and Wisconsin Law. I also got accepted into Georgetown and received $45,000 per year in scholarships. In my merit-based aid application, I already mentioned the full-ride offers I have and how receiving aid will allow me to attend Georgetown. I'm wondering if this is the final offer or if there is still room to negotiate. I'm still waiting to hear back from UCLA and Duke, which both could have possibly competitive offers. The deadline to accept aid is in less than two weeks, however, so I don't know if I'll be able to use the answers from these schools in negotiation. Uh, what do you think about all that? Well, um, I first of all, I would be reaching out to UCLA and Duke. Say, hey, I'm trying to make a decision. I'd love to hear what you have to say, what you have to offer. Um, that's the reality of the situation. Get that information. In terms of this other question, I'm wondering if this is the final offer or if there is still room to negotiate. As long as you're willing to walk away, there's always room to negotiate. And Say that again. That, that was a, that's a ringtone. As long as you're willing to walk away, there's always room. There's still room to negotiate. Yeah. I, I think that that is like, that's sort of what you need to know about negotiations. That it's, it's never over. It's always a negotiation until you sign on the dotted line. And so it doesn't matter what they say about their negotiation policy it doesn't matter what they've offered you so far. It doesn't matter if they've said that's all, you know, we we've got for you. You could always call them and walk. You could always call Georgetown and say, thank you very much for reconsidering. You know, if you've had some back and forth, whatever, you could always come back and say, I've decided to choose uh, this full ride offer to Loyola Chicago or this full ride offer to Wisconsin law. Thank you very much. I'm withdrawing my application. And that is a potential shifting point. It's a, it's an inflection point. It's a change right in your negotiating status. And they, they absolutely can say, okay, cool. You're done. Goodbye. But I've heard of examples of where they didn't say goodbye. They instead said, oh shit, this person means it. We really want this person. And then come back with more money. Yeah. After people have withdrawn, you know, withdrawn their application. Is that going to happen frequently? I, I don't know. But I just think that that's a beautiful way of capturing it. That it's just, as long as you could still walk, then it's still a negotiation. Only other thing I want to say is that this deadline to accept aid is, you know, they're giving you some deadline that's less than two weeks from whenever you wrote this, which was in early March or mid-March. There's no actual real reason why this has to be a deadline. I mean, that's an artificial deadline. They're, they're trying to get you to accept these offers by creating scarcity that doesn't actually exist. School doesn't start until September 1st. They're going to be negotiating all the way down to the wire because shit happens. 
You know, people withdraw after accepting offers or there's movement on some of the wait lists. Uh, there's just like it, it happens all the time, right? If there's movement on the wait lists at Yale, Harvard, Stanford, whatever, then there's movements on the wait lists down further. And I think that that probably also means different scholarships open up and who knows what. But one of these, you know, right now, Georgetown might have given a full ride offer to somebody who's going to end up accepting an offer at Yale. And as soon as that person accepts that offer at Yale, then Georgetown presumably has another scholarship that it might be able to give out. So, yeah, I I would ask for a delay, you know, just tell them you're not going to be ready to make a decision in less than two weeks and see what they recommend. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> What is the cost of Georgetown? Georgetown is 72,000. <laughs> yeah. 72,000 a year. So that 45,000, okay, great, but you're still 27,000 short. That's a lot of fucking money. Yeah, I mean, what if they were char- trying to charge you $27,000 a year? If yeah. the, if that offer had come with no scholarship and they were going to charge you $27,000 a year, You'd be like, damn, $27,000 a year is a lot. How am I going to pay for that? Yep. And if I borrow that money, I'm going to definitely owe six figures when I get out. Is that worth it? No, it's not. You have other schools that are willing to let you go there for free. Yeah. So either Georgetown moves or they don't move. And that's your decision of whether or not you're going to go to Georgetown. I think that that's, that to me seems like a no brainer that you just say, no, nah, I'll take my chances at this slightly lower ranked school. I'll go be a star at Wisconsin law school instead of, you know, being an also ran at Georgetown. Yeah. Which is going to put you at the top of the class. Most likely not necessarily, of course, but Hey, that has its benefits. So yeah. Be the big fish in the small pond there. And yeah, I mean, you, you could ask Georgetown to delay that decision deadline and if they say no, then at that decision deadline, I guess you could you could call them up and you could say, thank you very much. And I'm really sorry, but I just can't accept this offer. And then you're going to enter potentially a new phase of negotiation or not. They might just go, OK, bye. But yeah. they could also be like, oh, well, actually, we'll delay this deadline for you. And, oh, you know, there's a chance that this other I didn't even think about this other scholarship, you know, (laughs) fucking liars. (laughs) Uh, All right. Another one from anonymous. Go ahead. Subject is application addendum. Hi, Ben and Nathan. I'm attempting to get to into a T3 school next cycle. T3. Okay. So Harvard's not even on the table. Harvard is beneath. (laughs) This anonymous applicant right now. Yeah. Okay. So they're GI Bill plus yellow ribbon covers sticker price. And I have nobody to pass my GI Bill to. So the normal go on scholarship discussion isn't as applicable to me. My practice test had me in the 170s, shooting for 176 official to be above all medians. And my military service and other softs are all good. However, my GPA of 3.69, albeit in STEM, is below the 25th percentile at all these top schools. I recognize addendums should not be making excuses. I was wondering what you make of the following. Okay, we have an addendum pre-written here. 
the standard semester course load at some school is 16 credits or 128 credits over four years. I graduated with over 170 credits and multiple extracurriculars, ROTC leadership roles, International Affairs Association, and model UN travel team each required hours of weekly planning for both ROTC and Model UN. I would often have to travel on Fridays and weekends at the expense of my classes. GPA suffered. <laughs> What's your reaction to that? Um, I'm just kind of laughing at the clipped, the real clipped language. Like you notice that, I don't know if it's like um, military speak or what, but leaving out some some uh articles probably articles, yeah yeah my <laughs> rotc leadership roles just rotc leadership roles uh, okay. yeah and that last two word sentence of gpa suffered um i guess that's technically a sentence it has a subject and a verb but i don't know you might want to just let it breathe a little bit with a couple you could have said my gpa suffered during this time, or I don't know, it's just like, it's, it's almost like rude, right? It's like you're being a little bit too curt in your writing style. Like, we don't get what us do you wrong. Think of the mes- what do you think of the message? Do you think it works? Well, okay, so, all right, so totally different issue. I, I, I first, let me finish my point. I, I think yeah, I would, sure. I would humanize the writing a little bit. Like, don't go overboard with it. It doesn't need to be flowery, but you can afford to give them some thes in there just to make it sound a little more like a narrative and a little bit less like a, uh, I don't know, like it's like you're... It's like a report. It's like a filing. A exactly. Report. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. you're just giving the, you're giving your commander like nothing but, you know, <laughs> oh, there's bombs going off and I've got to give you the information as uh, it's a little more civilized than that. Um, as far as the message goes, uh, it's kind of ironic, right? Because the the language is so clipped. But in the first, I, I had a hard time understanding where you were going with the standard semester course load is at sixteen. Or sorry, the standard. I guess that was you had an addend, an, a, a redacted school name there. But the standard semester course load at X university is. 16 credits i'm kind of like why i don't give a shit why are you telling me that yeah and in a lot of schools it's 15 so your point (laughs) right and then you get to your you know you say or 128 credits over four years so the first sentence is not about you the first sentence is just totally about the college that you went to why are you telling me this and then it's so that you can get around to i graduated with over 170 credits why'd you do that? (laughs) Like, and what's that do for me as a law school? Well, this is my exact problem. I think, I think we might be on the same page here. I can't get out of my head. Okay. You're explaining why your GPA suffered. Why'd you do all this? Right. Like it, it's like, well, well then was that a bad decision? I mean, are you shiftless? Can you not make up your mind? You know, just, Ways that they might interpret those facts that are not necessarily in your favor. 
Oh, this it looks like, like you, somebody who didn't know what they wanted to do, and they just changed their mind a bunch. And I mean, maybe they're going to change their mind once they get here. Hmm. Multiple extracurriculars? Don't say multiple extracurriculars. Sounds like two. <laughs> and it sounds like you're on the intramural softball team. Like, I don't give a shit. Yeah. You know, so say what you actually did, and you, you you're then you throw in there ROTC leadership roles, plural? Uh, they all that means nothing like because there were so many of them none of them could have been anything right like interpreting it neutrally interpreting it as someone who is not like predisposed to like you i'm predisposed to like you you're a thinking else podcast listener you're asking us for advice like we believe you but someone who doesn't believe you is going to be like oh yeah multiple rotc leadership roles well, and this is an odd shift too to International Affairs Association. That's just an institution. You're what? What's that? Yeah, you I mean, from it, roles to institution. That's a resume item. Like, why are you putting it into this GPA addendum? Did you have a role there? <laughs> we need to make this at least parallel. I don't know. Um, well, in also, the back of my mind, I'm just constantly thinking, like, okay, it sounds like you allocated your time poorly right that that is one interpretation yeah another interpretation or another way of like even putting that aside you were a stem major aren't you gonna say that in your gpa addendum (laughs) like if you can only point them to one fact that's the fact i would probably choose and what, what, where in your class did you graduate? Because if you were right. in your college, right, in your STEM in your major. degree, yeah, where were you? That might be your most persuasive argument. Let's I would talk cut. about how you're higher than one three point six nine, and not talk about excuses why it's low. Let's talk about why it's high. I would cut all that shit, potentially, in favor of 3.69 in aeronautical engineering put me at, you know, I was number two out of... 490 people in my major or you know even if it's in the top 90 percent it's just something like let's flip it around and make it sound it's just a much simpler story than i did this and that and this other thing and i took too many credits and and that's why my gpa suffered it's like well what is it you're you're making too many excuses Right, all these reasons come off as excuses, and I'm not. I'm not saying they're not legitimate. I just the way it comes off is like I don't know. I you got to pick one, and I think I would pick. I don't know. I would like I, I could see picking the model UN travel team. Mm-hmm. You know, Something this that was sounds serious, <laughs> right? This was really important to me. I had to travel and miss classes and whatever. And I managed a 3.69 in my STEM degree anyway, but then you don't need like you're throwing in all this extra shit just doesn't, I don't know, like each of these several things that you were doing required hours of weekly planning. I think Ben's going to go back to, Oh, well maybe you should have cut two out of those three things and only done one of them. The reader is just not on your side. What you're right. trying to do is you're trying to convince the person to take a different view of you. So they're already on the right. defensive. There's this implication that, hey, you don't understand me. Oh, I don't understand you? Okay. What, what do you mean? And 
So you have to overcome that, and it's going to be easier to focus on one thing, maybe two at most, and let's try to turn the GPA into something positive. I do have some, like, there's all this discussion about the addendum, but this person has a 3.69, right? And uh, they're shooting for a 176. Let's say they get that 176. The estimator is estimating a less than half scholarship at Chicago, which is number three. So maybe they can get in, even with that 369. What's with up? the right LSAT. Yeah. 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 Okay, thank you, Anonymous. Hopefully there was something helpful in there. We've got uh, a next email here coming from Todd. The subject says, how to study writing. Fellas, writing section, period, question mark. I think that what Todd is trying to do there is say, fellas, writing section question, but using the question mark as a, instead of saying, typing out the word, question at least that's the way i read that okay yeah it's a either way it's a strange construction i take the lsat in april and am correctly dedicating most all of my time to the multiple choice questions i can't pretend the writing section does not exist why why would you who (laughs) no one told you to do that We want you to pretend it doesn't exist. No, we don't want you to pretend it doesn't exist, but we also don't want you to waste any time preparing. Um, You can just watch a video on lsatdemon.com. We have multiple 15-minute videos. We have a little lesson on it, and that's all you need to do ever. Todd continues, but without any way of knowing what I'm doing right or wrong, it seems less than optimal to just practice the essays over and over. Yeah, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Say more. Like, yeah, don't. If you're going to do anything in terms of writing before you take this official writing section, it would be one essay, not multiple. So you're already done. You've already prepared more than enough. (laughs) I would prefer zero. I don't think anybody needs to write a sample LSAT writing. I I don't, I just think it's a waste of time. I I do not think it's a waste of time for you to watch a 15 minute video. Like click through our little lesson that we've got, watch a video of me or watch a video of Ben talking about the writing sample. We can give you a real easy rubric for how to attack this assignment. And once you see the rubric, you're not going to need to ever practice it. It's the dumbest, simplest exercise in the world. Anyway, yeah, and it doesn't count. It's not part of your score. So it's just like a copy of the essay is going to accompany all of your applications, but it's not part of your score. So it's not like you should spend most of your time on the multiple choice questions. That's the only thing that's scored. So you should spend all of your time on the multiple choice questions on the LSAT and a 15 minute little side, like you could literally sign up for LSAT writing, then do your preparation for LSAT writing 15 minutes, watch the video, then just immediately go and actually do your LSAT writing and you'd be done with it. I mean, this is like half an afternoon is all you should ever devote total to the LSAT writing. And I'd like you to eat lunch while you're watching the video. And I would like you to eat lunch while you're watching the video. Yes. To squeeze maximum (laughs) value out of your time. 
Otherwise, you'd be wasting time paying too much attention to the video. Okay. Yeah. I took the GRE in 2020 and was in the 91st percentile for the writing section, which seems to be testing a similar skill as the LSAT writing. <laughs> I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. Just don't care. The, the LSAT writing is its own super formulaic, dumb exercise that's not scored at all. So ain't no percentiles. Just do the dumb assignment and get it over with so that you can get back to studying real LSAT questions. Um, Todd continues, I was also in cross-examination debate for eight years, which has a very similar critical thinking requirement for success and being able to do so on the spot with very little time to prepare. <laughs> ben, is, is the LSAT writing anything like debate? <laughs> Oh, you didn't think of that in in the time. No, all the facts are given to you. You just have to allocate them for or against your position. Yeah. I provide these details to see if you can give specific advice, but my conundrum seems applicable generally as well, and I've not seen many resources for writing on the demon or comparable competitors. Yes, because everyone realizes it's pointless. Right. Yeah, it's there's no conundrum here, Todd. You just need to watch our little video and do the dumb assignment. It's like LSAT writing is the last thing you should be worried about. It is necessary. You can't get your 120 to 180 LSAT score back if you don't complete the LSAT writing at least once. You have to do it once. So if you take the LSAT five times, you still only have to do LSAT writing once. And once you've done it, you get to check off that box and forget about it forever. So my advice to Todd would be, if you're signed up for an official LSAT, or if you've already taken an official LSAT, oh, it says you're taking the LSAT in April. As soon as they'll let you do the LSAT writing, you can go ahead and just do the LSAT writing. But I mean, this like if you spend more than 90 minutes total on this, I'm going to be disappointed in you. Watch our lesson, do the assignment for real, not for practice, but for real, and then put it in your rear view mirror and get back to studying the multiple choice, which is where entirely where your score comes from. Yeah. If you, if you spend any more time on this and therefore get one point less on the LSAT, that's a loss for you. Okay. Speaking of the April LSAT, Michael says, should I reschedule? I am signed up for the April LSAT and had not begun studying more than a couple hours a week until one month before the test dates. Okay. I That's a mistake. A I mean, like, okay, so you've already made a mistake there. You signed up for the test and then didn't really start studying until a month before the test, which is, I guess it's human nature that people do that, but I would much prefer that you just start taking your studying seriously, paying attention to your practice test scores, and then once you're happy with your practice test scores, then sign up for a test. I think sometimes people sign up for a test as like, oh, well, that's what I'm doing today. You know, I've achieved something this week or this month because I signed up for the test. Yep, I'm signed up for the test. That was a big process. I had to sign up on LSAC.org. I had to put in my name and my credit card. And Tick all that, that box off. Yeah, I had to pay for it. You know, like it's it's really happening now. And then you just go back to watching Netflix <laughs> until it's a month before your test. And then you start actually studying. That's just a waste. It's a waste of resources. Yeah, it reminds me of this uh, 
there's, I don't know the name of the to-do method or the productivity method, but the, the philosophy behind the method is look at your to-do list and figure out what thing you're avoiding most and tackle that first. This seems like the, it's a, that's the opposite of it, right? It's like, oh, I got the, I got the LSAT signed up for. It's yeah. like, yeah, what you really need to do is start doing a practice problem. And you're, right. there's something in you that's making that yeah. a bigger thing than it it's is. Like, and so then you're not doing it. I'm going to throw $210 at the law school admission council to sign up for this test instead of spending two hours studying for the test. Yeah or taking a practice test or reviewing a practice test, you know, like you're not, you're not actually doing the work. Instead, you're just like, Oh, let me tick off this box by signing up for this thing. Yeah. You didn't really do anything in that time. All right, go so, ahead. Yeah. Michael continues. I took a cold diagnostic 155. Nice. That's fucking amazing. Michael, don't waste it. I've been using the demon basic plan, mostly drilling, for at least two hours a day, and I have seen an increase to 156, then 158. I'm starting to realize there is probably no advantage to taking an April test over a later test, and the scores will be released past the deadline to apply for the June test. Apply. Sign up. I'd like to take one... I'd like 173 plus, but I understand... But understand that I can reach most of my goals with a high 160 score. Um, okay. I plan to apply to schools this coming fall. Intend to not pay for law school. Have an UGPA of 3.53. Most of the schools I'm looking to apply to rank around 35 at best. But will inquire into more prestigious schools if I get some solid offers from T... <laughs> T75-ish schools. Okay. My question is, should I reschedule to the June test? Conversely, is there a reason not to? Should I just take two practice tests right before the change deadline and make the call then? You're already signed up. I think there's no point doing anything right until the change deadline. Just because you've already wasted the money on the test, you're not you're not going to save any money by doing anything between now and the change deadline. So I guess you could wait till the change deadline to make a call. My question is, are you going to actually be ready for June? Cause we don't, it's just not established that you're going to be ready for June either. I think it's probably at this point, pretty well established that you're not going to be ready for April. It, it kind of does seem like you're probably going to end up rescheduling, but who knows you've been studying a couple hours a day and, you know, people who start with 155 tend to do pretty damn well on this test. Like most people who start with a cold 155 are going to end up in the 160s quickly. And so you might decide that it's worth taking the test in April. I just, all my answer to all of these, should I schedule, should I reschedule, should I push the date? It's always like my answer, my real answer is I just wish you wouldn't have signed up in the first place. Like you don't put yourself in this situation if you just don't register until the registration deadline for a test. So again, the next registration deadline, the April, uh, sorry, the June deadline is April 25th. So that's my question is I, I think you should be looking at that April 25th deadline, trying to figure out if you're actually going to be ready to take that June test. And 
the only way to tell is if your practice tests indicate you're ready. I don't think two practice tests right before the change deadline is really telling you what you think it's telling you. I mean, it's still just two data points and those two data points can lie to you pretty significantly. So I would instead be keeping track of all of my practice test scores. I'd be looking at like, okay, what's the average of my last five practice tests? And just keep doing that as these deadlines approach and then decide what you want to do. At most one a week. So don't misinterpret that as, oh, let's take a bunch of practice tests. No, you can do even time sections, just do one section a day and then that's a practice test. And you can get a score from that. Right, right. Thank you for writing in, Michael. I don't know what more I want to say about that. Just I, I wish everybody would just stop signing up for tests if they're not documented ready as indicated by their practice test scores. Yeah, develop the underlying skill of crushing the LSAT and then do whatever the fuck you want with that. <laughs> Sign up for whatever test is next, whatever test you want. Because once you have the skill... Now you have the goods to do great going forward. It's like people are putting all these. I remember someone a long time ago uh, when I was starting my business, and I think I had had it going for a couple years at that point. And this friend of mine, she started, she wanted to start a business. And she, I went to her house and she had checkbooks with the business. Oh, yeah name and all that stuff on it right and like a business card and all this stuff and i was like cool but are you selling anything like right i don't have that yet but that's not important yeah yeah people well people love going to city hall and like get their business license or whatever you know yeah and checkbooks and bank accounts and business cards and CEO. Glossy brochures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Titles. Yeah. And then it's like, wait, what do you sell? Oh, no, nothing. We're not. It's nothing. We don't have anything for sale yet. We're figuring that out. We're going to get, <clears throat> probably going to do this. We're probably going to do that. Okay. Well, let's see if you can actually do something and then see the need to have all this stuff. Yeah. When I started my business, the first thing that I did is I scheduled a class and started selling seats in the class. That's so funny. That's exactly what I did. I went to this office building and I was debating between Arlington, Virginia and DC. And I decided to go with the more expensive one in DC and glad I did. There's a lot more people I think interested in LSAT in DC than Arlington, which is just outside of DC. But it was like book a classroom, start getting people into that classroom. Then worry about your (laughs) business license and your, you know, your business cards, you, I don't know that you ever need them. A lot of these things came later. It's like, oh, shit, I think I'm required to have this or I need this for something. That's a good way to do it, though. I mean, yeah, I agree. Like, you start the business, see if you've got a product, then figure out all of the boxes that you've got to tick off. Because if you don't have a viable product, then you don't have to worry about it. You just don't have a business. So, yeah, Michael... Yeah, he doesn't have a viable product yet. He started with a 155, which means that he's potentially real close to a viable product. But I think you got to take the pressure off yourself, like this self-imposed deadline of I'm already signed up for the April test. Ouch. I wish you wouldn't have done that. Um, And instead, just relax with your practice test scores and keep track. And then when they look 
good, you know, for you, Michael, high 160s. I wouldn't, I just don't settle for anything less than high 160s. With a 155 diagnostic, you got to be able to get that at least to 168, 169, but preferably in the 170s, then register for an official test. And you still should be in plenty of time for fall applications, Michael. Okay. Next, yeah, next one's from Aiden. Hey, Nathan and Ben. That's the subject. Hey, Nathan and Ben. I started using a demon-free account two weeks ago and made a 158 on a timed practice test yesterday. That was test 71 in Law Hub. My worst section was games. Prioritizing accuracy, I finished only the first nine questions, then entered C for the rest. I didn't take a cold diagnostic beforehand, which leads to my main question. Do you think it's possible for me to make my way into the mid-170s by this time next year? My plan is... I can answer that question right now, yes. Go ahead. I think that's very likely. Of course, we don't know for sure, but you got a 158 with a shitty game section. That's the easiest section to improve. A 158 by itself, even with a good game section, would be a solid, solid starting yeah. score. So, and in in a separate email, Aiden emailed our various shows um, multiple oh, okay. times. Yeah. In a different email, Aiden had said that uh, he got the first nine right on the games. So it's like oh, he nice. was able to figure them out. And then he yeah. just had to guess on the rest and he ended up with a 158. I mean, Aiden, that looks like my diagnostic. My, I mean, my diagnostic was like almost perfect on LR, almost perfect on RC. And then I just didn't get what was going on with the games. I made it into the 170s. Yeah. In like six weeks, you're talking about making it into the 170s in a year, a year. <laughs> I didn't catch yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> the answer to that question is yes. My plan is to buy a basic or premium subscription this summer and make as much progress as possible. I'm currently finishing up my sophomore year of undergrad, and I've been trying to build my schedules each semester so that I can maintain my 4.0 with mostly easy A's. However, I have to take some challenging classes next semester and probably won't be able to study much for the LSAT during the fall. I'm hoping to have an easier spring of 24 semester, which would allow me to get in some more practice before I take the official test, ideally with practice tests regularly in the 170s by then. Love the pod, BTW, exclamation point, exclamation point. Thanks, Aiden. Anything else you want to say to Aiden? Yeah, I think, Aiden, you're budgeting a huge amount of time for this that you probably won't end up needing, but I don't hate it. I think you're one of those people who's going to plan essentially for the worst, and then find that your outcomes are going to come a lot sooner. But if they don't, you have the time and flexibility to take the test later and still apply early with the highest GPA you can have and the highest LSAT score you can have. I, I, I think I, you're going to do amazing. I want to give Aiden the other end of the same advice that I've been giving to Michael and everyone else who's talking about specific test dates. Aiden you're making the opposite error, which is you're like, my first official LSAT is going to be sometime in the spring or summer of 24. Nah, dude, why not way sooner? Potentially with don't a schedule cold, it, <laughs> don't schedule it, but with a cold 158, and you're studying right now, or you're going to get a, a basic or premium subscription this summer. 
I think as early as potentially this August, you should probably be thinking about taking the test. It, Just have that idea, right? Like if your practice words, tests indicate. Yeah. If your practice tests get up there, be willing to take it. What we're what you're worried about, right, Nathan, is that his practice test scores come up and because he's kind of mentally set for the spring, he doesn't even know the registration deadlines for the fall or whatever. And he doesn't even just think to like, oh, wait, maybe I could go sign up and take it and get it out of the way. The deadline for the August test isn't until June 30th. So that's to, that seems to me like Aiden's got another month or two of this semester studying part time, then maybe a full month of summer to study more. And yeah, by June 30th, Aiden's scores could easily be in the 170s. And if they are, then you should sign up for that August test. Yeah. If, if that's too soon, July 26th is the deadline for the September 2022 exam. And why not take it? Like, it's just, it's dumb not to at least open up the possibility of taking some of these tests. Yeah. Um, if your practice test scores indicate you're ready. You start running a four minute mile, go ahead and enter the competition. <laughs> right. Excellent. Yeah, that that's, that's a good way to think about it. Okay. Um, this next one is again, anonymous and it has a subject resume and the ABA. How much of a thorough investigation does the ABA do on law school applicants' resume? Wait, on a <laughs> law school applicant's resume when seeking admission for the bar? Zero. The ABA is not involved. Who is? Uh, the states. Um, I don't know the the bar of the state. Yeah, right? it's your state bar that's going to admit you to practice law. They're going to admit you to the bar in your state. So it's the state bar that's going to do whatever due diligence. Um, you could call the state bar in. I think people need to get comfortable calling the state bar. Call the bar in your state. Like you're going to be a member of this organization potentially. Go ahead and yeah, get, get in touch. Get comfortable talking. Oh, there's two <laughs> things right there, right? There's getting comfortable with the organization you're going to become a member of. Two, just get comfortable with picking up the phone and calling. It's so yeah. astronomically faster than anything else everyone tries <laughs> yeah. to do these days. This is probably one of the most old man things that we say, but you lawyers use the damn telephone. Like your lawyers well, are not afraid myself. of calling people. I, oh, me too. No, I hate like, it. I'm, I'm like tempted to like, oh, there's an email here. Okay. Uh, hey, can you help me with this? It's like, no, just call them because now it's going to be resolved and right. it's going to be over. Yeah, yeah. Get a human being and you don't need to like, you know, how, like millennials do the like, you know, is it okay if I call you? Like, no. Don't you yeah. don't need to text before you call when you're talking to a professional organization like they have a business phone number. You can call that phone number literally 24 hours a day. They're probably only going to answer during business hours, but you can call any time to get in touch with them. You could probably call them at midnight, leave them a voicemail and they'll call you back tomorrow. I mean, it's just like it's a business and they expect these kinds of things and you can go ahead and get in touch. I'm a little hesitant or i don't know perplexed yeah why do you ask asking this because a resume is not that is not the thing that's going to make or break your application so why are you feeling the need to fudge anything on it but anyways anonymous consent continues i did stay away from embellishing anything uh, okay great but are they verifying dates worked for example 
this is reminding me of that Santos guy. For example, say I've been working <laughs> at the same job for the past six years, and recently I've been unemployed since November 2022. If I plan to apply sometime in March, I know you don't approve. It's too late. Do I really need to specify my unemployment status since November 2022? If yes, should I put this in an addendum to explain why I am between jobs and currently looking? Oh, you're already not following our advice. And yeah, like, I mean, if you're going to like, <laughs> it's like, I want to ask you for your advice, even though I'm totally not following a bigger, more important piece of your advice. I mean, if you're applying sometime in March, you're just lining up to be a sucker in this game. I mean, you're, you're going to lose. You already lost this game if that's your plan. Let's so talk about it doesn't the, even the, fucking yeah. matter what you do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess I'm saying the same thing in a more... Um, mathematical way. way. Oh. Yeah, here we. So, or so the marginal benefit you get from lying about your November 2022 employment, right? Yeah, is astronomically small compared to the marginal benefit you'll get by applying a few months later. Yeah, like and you can. You don't have to lie, and you'll do exponentially better. Ironically, what? ironically, <laughs> this applicant is probably thinking. I need to go this cycle because my employment status looks so bad on my resume. Yeah. Truth is your unemployment status, who gives a shit? People lose jobs for whatever reason. People take time off for whatever reason. People they stop don't working care. They care about your <laughs> LSAT and GPA. That's what they care about. So I, I have a feeling that this candidate is just burying their head in the stand on probably multiple issues. I bet this candidate does not have their best possible LSAT. Yeah. And they're like, well, no, but because I'm unemployed, I need to go to law school right now. That's the worst reason to go to law school. I mean, I can't emphasize that enough. That going to law school because you are unemployed is a garbage reason to go to law school. Yeah, you're not making money, and now you're going to actually incur more debt and less income potential. <laughs> it's a terrible, terrible reason to go to law school. And it sounds like you're trying to force it in late in the cycle, you know, and you're worried about the deck chairs on the Titanic. Like, what do you think? Do they need to specify their unemployment status since November of 2022? No, just don't even say anything. Just there's your resume. You got a problem with it? Talk to me. <laughs> How many people are applying to law school without ever having a job? Right. If like, people can just, go K through JD, then unemployed professional people can go. If they ask, just say I took time off and <clears throat> on my applications for law school. It does not even matter. You're going down Don't the wrong lie. path, Anonymous, yeah. You're, and it has nothing to do with lying on your resume. Don't lie on your resume. Certainly don't falsify anything on your resume. I think you can sometimes judicious, judiciously leave out information that might be bad for you, but you know you can't put present on this job that you've been unemployed now for no. four months. You can't that's do that. explicitly saying something that's not true. That's really right. different from not saying something that is right. true. So... Yeah, you should put the dates on there. I mean, I bet, but they didn't see that. In fact, I mean, yeah, you, I think you can infer from their email that they they put present on their resume. Mm -hmm. Or that's what they're planning on doing because they don't want to have to explain this unemployed status. Just put the date, 
But yeah, don't apply this cycle. Apply next cycle. Do not apply in March. Apply in September. It's like six months later and at the beginning of the cycle instead of way, way, way the end of the cycle. And I guarantee Anonymous needs a better LSAT. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You need a better LSAT. It's what you really need, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, Pranav says, how do people in bottom tier slash less employable law schools find jobs? I plan to practice either civil trial litigation or criminal law. Okay, so try you want to do you want to be a trial lawyer is what you're saying. Okay, great. Appeals are another area that I'm interested in. Yeah, okay, but there's really not a lot of appellate work. I don't think people just straight go into appellate no, litigation. No, the bread and butter is all in the district courts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so maybe someday after 10 years of legal practice, you know, you're gonna end up becoming an appellate litigator. As of now, my GPA from my undergrad is not that great. My LSATs could be better too. Okay. So the two main things that law schools use (laughs) to determine your aptitude for law school are not good right now for you. Okay. Okay. The universities I've been accepted into have poor employment outcomes and bar passage rates. On law school transparency... Uh, This site portrays ABA data on each law school's Section 509 report. In the old days, these reports were hidden from the public because deans of bottom-ranked law schools hid them since it would ruin their reputation. These reports bring out... Sorry, these reports being out is likely why fewer people are going for law these days. Hmm. Pranav is like trying to educate us about something that we already know a lot about. Pranav, if you go to lsatdemon.com forward slash scholarships, you'll see that we link to every school's 509 report. And in fact, that entire tool is built on the data available on those 509 reports. Um, So we're very familiar with this data. Pranav continues, I see many people saying that going to a school with subpar employment outcomes is a terrible idea. Is this true? Also, many other suggestions that being top in your class is a requirement if you want to go to a school with lousy employment rates. That's not really a sentence, but okay. What do you think for Pranav? Well, a couple ideas come to mind. I think something that we need to really help Pranav and others, if they haven't, Pranav, sorry, others, if they haven't heard it yet already, understand, and that is the selection bias issue, right? And are you, you're familiar with Alan Kruger's study? No. So Alan Kruger uh, was a economics professor. I can't remember which school, but for ages, right, people have said, look, now this has to do with undergrad, but it's just applies just as well to law school. Um, look, you have all these uh, undergrads going to these Ivy League schools and they leave and they make more money than people who go to less prestigious schools. Therefore, the Ivy Leagues are positioning them, training them. The Ivy Leagues are causing them. It's worth it to go to It's worth it to go. Yes, and this is a selection bias issue because the real value of these schools is the filtering that happens. They just don't admit anybody to these schools. They require high LSAT, high GPA in the law school context. And it's the 
LSAT and GPA that indicates how badass these kids actually are. That's why they make a lot of money after law school, not because anything special happened at the law school, is what you're saying. Yeah, now the the magic of Alan Kruger's study, because before that, right, everybody knew this was a possibility. All you have is a correlation between prestigious schools and higher income. But it's like, why? What's the cause? And what he did is he looked at people who got into high-ranked schools right? decided okay. to go to lower-ranked schools, compared their income to other students who ended up going to the higher-ranked schools and found that they were essentially the same. This was in so, that book, wasn't it? What book? The I, one about I heard the, it on... Oh, I thought it was in the, the Cost of College book. That oh, yes. I heard, I heard it on uh, Freakonomics, actually. And then I also read about it in the Debt Free You book. But... Um, that was the magic of his study. And it's like, hey, here's a clever way of parsing out what really matters, the person going into the institution or the institution itself. Now, there were some exceptions. I think um, poor students or minorities who ended up going into higher institutions actually did benefit from that and ended up getting higher salaries. But I can't remember all those exceptions. In any case, the point here is that... <laughs> When people go to these subpar schools, these subpar employment outcomes are probably largely due to the people who ended up going to those schools, not necessarily because the schools themselves are subpar. And so if you go in there and kick ass and you go in there and continue to do the best you can and can network and so forth, you're the type of person who's likely going to succeed anyway. I do think it does matter on some level in the law context because some firms just simply don't hire from these lower-ranked schools and it would require more work. But the point here is that both things matter, right? The student matters and maybe on some level the school matters, but it's not just all the school, which is what Panab is sort of suggesting. Well, it seems like Pranav has gotten some some probably good information out there that if you are going to go to one of these low ranked, you know, like if if you're looking at a website that is showing you poor employment outcomes and poor bar passage rates for some school or other, that's because that school has poor employment outcomes and poor bar passage rates. Yeah. And absolutely, if you are going to go to that school, you need to be in the top of your class. You need to be going to that school on a scholarship. There's maybe exactly. nothing wrong with that school for you if you can get yourself a scholarship to that school. But if that's the best school you can get into, you shouldn't go at all because your employment outcomes and your bar outcomes, if you're barely squeaking into that school or if that school wants to charge you full, for full price or anything close to full price, it's because you're not that good of an applicant. Sorry, and, but your grades and your LSAT yeah. indicate that you're not likely to be very successful in law. Either you're going to wash out of law school or you're not going to pass the bar or you're not going to be able to get a job. That's what your LSAT and GPA indicate. And unless you can fix your LSAT to change that story, then I, that's I if I'm a betting man, that's what I would bet on. I'm sorry, but I would bet against you. If you don't have the right LSAT and you don't have the right GPA, then I'm going to bet against you being successful in law. Because even if you do have the right LSAT and the right GPA, there's still a significant chance that you're not going to be successful in law. And in, and if you're if you really are stuck at one of these schools where 
job outcomes are bad, bar passage rate is bad. If you're there for free because you got the right LSAT, then your risk is lower and you're likely to be one of the few people who are going to actually be successful at that school. But if you're paying full price, you're probably going to finance this whole endeavor and the scholarship kids are going to beat you out for whatever limited job opportunities are available for someone who goes to these schools. That's some shit that the schools themselves will never tell you. Where do we go for employment data? Because it's not actually on the standard 509 information report. That's something that is not on these PDFs. So do we go to now? I've always been going to law school transparency because they do have big law placement percentages and things like that. Right. For, for law placement percentages, but that's not actually 509 data or it's anyway, it's not on the standard 509 information report. Mm -mm. So I'm not sure what section of the ABA, whatever requires that maybe it's, it's other 509 data that is not reflected on the standard 509 information report, but yeah, that shit's not on that report. Yeah. Anyway, yes, go to law school transparency and take a look at all of that stuff. And if (laughs) you got to be realistic, man, if your school has bad job placement, bad bar passage rate, you know, if they're going to charge you money for that, then that's probably a bad investment. Anything else? No. Good luck. All right. Here's another anonymous. I don't see a subject. Go ahead. Hi, Ben and Nate. I graduated with a useless major and I have no interest in working in that field. Decided that I would start studying for the LSAT seven months ago. Got a 170 official and planned to retake in April and June with my 3.66 GPA. However, I'm considering this one-year master's one year masters in financial analytics at my local university, which costs $20,000 instead of law school. I have reservations about going to law school, semicolon, capital I. It sounds like a lot of time and money, even with a full ride. What do you guys think? Finance program for a year or go to law school for free? Why not neither? (laughs) Sure. I mean, (laughs) you have to open yourself up to the possibility of a third. Like you guys are get you're, you're giving, sorry, you guys you anonymous are giving us guys this dichotomy of finance program for a year for $20,000 or go to law school for free. Well, there's lots of other options. And the main one is why do you feel like you have to go to grad school? I mean, you're talking about a potentially useless one year masters. I mean, I have a one year MBA. It's basically a joke. What's the point? By the way, get a scholarship to business school. I got a scholarship to business school based on my GMAT. So if you're going to like this financial analytics, it's probably the GRE. But maybe you can kill the GRE and get that degree for free. But why? Even then, why? Right? Like, I think your point. Notice what this correspondent says. I kind of think I should just do the master's program and apply to law schools later if my heart really desires it. I'm only 21 also, so I have plenty of time ahead of me. Get a job. Yeah, go get a job and then earn money rather than putting yourself more into debt. And during that time, um, you know, move toward jobs that interest you and see what you can learn. 
There are plenty of Audible books, YouTube, good YouTube videos on finance. You can learn a lot of stuff for practically free. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I feel you, Anonymous, because I understand what it's like to be 21 and not really have any idea what I want to do with my life. I mean, I was 31 and didn't really have much of an idea what I wanted to do with my life. And I had already racked up a couple of master's degrees at that point, still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. But fortunately, my two master's degrees, I got both of them for free. And, um, you know, mercifully, I didn't waste a bunch of money on that. I did waste a bunch of time trying to figure out what I wanted to do, but that's what young people do. How did you pay for a living? I had a job. I, I always, I mean, I always worked, right? Like I worked in high school. I worked in college. I worked all, all the time. I always had a job or something going on. So I had a yeah. freelance like content management kind of a thing. I was like sort of an editor, copy editor, kind of, I was like entering stuff into web tools to create these news items, uh, you know, copy paste, do some copy editing, write a headline, uh, whatever. It was a, just a stupid freelance job. And I was able to work during, yeah, both of those degrees. Yeah. Um, I think I learned more from the jobs that I had and hated than I did from any educational experience. I mean, I, you'd, School for me was always like, okay, let me just tick off the boxes. Like I'm going to do the minimum in order to get a degree and you know, didn't put much into it. Didn't get that much out of it. I, I think go get a job. Cause then at least you're getting paid. At least you're getting money out of it instead of paying money. Yeah. Yeah. And learning law school will always be there. Anonymous always. It'll be there next year and the year after that and the year after that and the year after that. It's like never going to change. It's always going to be there. It's always going to be available. It's always going to be various versions of the same scam. You know, they're charging people way too much money to go get these degrees, but they're also giving really overly generous scholarships to people who have the right LSAT and the right GPA. That hasn't changed in the time that I've been in this business, and I don't really anticipate it changing anytime soon. I think the same is probably true of these dumb master's programs, but like I... I don't think that this master's in financial analytics is going to lead you to this dream job. I don't, I don't think that's how that works. Like people who are doing high level financial analysis, it's not because they got a master's. It's because they got a job, right? They worked their way up somehow. Yeah. yeah. And then maybe consider the master's if the job like maybe you can get a job to pay for it. Maybe you can get a job that's like, oh yeah, it, like this is what we need in order for you to go into the management training program or whatever, get this master's. Yeah. But just randomly latching on to either a master in financial analytics or a JD, those two things are miles apart, which indicates that you probably shouldn't do either of them until you have a better handle on what you want to do with your life. All right. Last one is from Jackson. The subject is general LSAT. I'm graduating from LSU in December of 2023 and plan on applying for law school in the fall. I don't know much about the LSAT and took a diagnostic, which was a 139. I inconsistently studied for a couple of months and took the September 2022 LSAT. Oh, dear God. 
and scored a 148. I say, dear God, Jackson, because it's just like <laughs> you have no business taking the official test until your practice test scores indicate you're ready. And after inconsistently studying, you just went and fired one of those bullets. That's uh, it's a strategic error. Thankfully, you've got four more attempts potentially in the next although, five years. Although not the worst, right? There are people out there who literally sign up for the test to figure out what's on the test. <laughs> yeah, that's no bad. prep at all. Just take the test cold officially. Yeah, that's real bad. This is slightly not as bad, but still bad. Yep. Since January of 2023, I have been, I really have, sorry, I have really been dedicated and can feel my grasp of the test has improved tremendously. I figured out that technical prep books do not help, and I registered for the LSAT demon, which has been great. I'm in the free mode. I am upgrading my membership and spending the next two months using the demon. What kind of score improvement should I expect, and what range of schools, whoa, should I realistically be looking at? GPA is 3.75, and my best practice test right now is a 156. What do you want to say to Jackson? Okay, well, first of all, to your question about the schools, just go to lsatdemon.com forward slash scholarships, put in your 3.75, and then start playing around with the LSAT scores. Yeah, put in your 156 and see what that gets you, but then put in 166 and see how the entire world changes. Yeah, and look at how much money is on the line here. You say, I'm upgrading my membership and spending the next two months using the demon okay, um, how far are you going to get in two months? I don't know. Some people go up quite a bit in two months. Some people maybe five, ten points in two months. It's going to depend. You have to decide every month whether you want to keep going given the scores you have and how high you want to go. Demon no, allows but- you to, to upgrade, downgrade, pause, stop, restart pretty much any time. So instead of spending the next two months using the demon, I think you should spend the next one month using the demon mm-hmm. and and then reassess. I mean, if you're subscribing at the live level, you can come and just talk to us, literally me and Ben in our live classes and all of our other amazing teachers. And you can talk to us about what you're doing, how you're feeling, where you're scoring, and we can help you revise your plan, not two months from now, but one month from now. Even if you're not um, at the live level, you can self-study, you can keep track of your practice test scores, you can email our help team if you wanna talk to somebody. Um, But I would reassess after one month, and again, I, I would go to, lsat.link forward slash dates and uh, look at our list of all of the upcoming registration deadlines and then just kind of reassess every month or so. I, I feel like Jackson is again deciding in advance, like I'm taking the June LSAT. So what kind of improvement can I expect in two months? My advice would be don't plan on taking the June LSAT. Instead, just do practice tests about one a week, study hard in the demon for one month, and then reassess and see where you're at. How much do people improve, Ben? How much do people improve overall? Well, yep. anywhere from 10 to 15 to 20 to 30 points. I mean, 30 is crazy, but it happens. 
we had multiple people. I mean, we had, uh, there were probably, if I wanted to start making a list, I mean, I could search through my email. I bet I would find five people who made a 30 point improvement this last year, which is just insane. Um, compared to what kind of improvements we used to see in the pre demon era. Um, but yeah, like at a bare minimum, I think you should be able to improve by 10 points and, that's actually kind of disappointing. I, I think people should be looking for 15 or 20 point improvement kind of as a minimum. If your best yeah. practice test is already a 156, who knows? I mean, it seems like you're demonstrating a little bit of aptitude, right? You've gone from, you've already gone up 17 points from your diagnostic of 139. Yep. Sometimes people are going to go up another 17 points from there. And you get all the way into the 170s. I don't know. Sky's the limit. I would just take it one month at a time. Yep. And look at what a couple more points can do for you in terms of your applications and scholarships and decide what's worth it to you. And just don't rush into this. I mean, it is always the case that you can just wait another cycle, wait to get your best LSAT, wait to apply at the beginning of the next cycle, It'll always be there. It'll be here before you know it. As an old man, I can tell you that time goes faster and faster and it'll just like, it seems like forever for you to wait a little bit, but it's just not. The next application cycle will be here. It'll feel like tomorrow. And the next application cycle after that is going to feel like the day after tomorrow. (laughs) So just take your time here and make sure that you get yourself the best possible LSAT because it's going to just pretty much directly determine the price you're going to pay to go. And we're not talking about a few thousand dollars. We're talking about a hundred thousand dollars or more. Yep. Thanks Jackson. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, Be LSAT famous. Ask us questions or share news with us at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, it is the very best way to prepare for the law school admission test. You get to study with me and with Ben, and uh, we have fun, and the outcomes are really impressive. Anyway, if you want to talk about it, you can email help at lsatdemon.com. Check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode four, uh, 395 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. Yeah.